from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read together Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven open and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all, all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the second section of the Catechism, we've been dealing with our deliverance. Having learned about how great our sins and misery are, the Catechism has spent many Lord's Days dealing with how I am delivered from my sins and misery. We've seen how Jesus Christ is the true mediator and deliverer, and how we can only be restored to righteousness and life by Christ alone. We spent many weeks going through the 12 articles of the Christian faith as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. The last weeks, our focus has been on the sacraments which God has given us as signs and seals of his gracious promises to us. Today, we deal with the final Lord's Day in this section on our deliverance. It speaks about the means that God has given us to bring us to a living faith in him and to keep us living in close communion with him. God's goal is to allow us to share in the blessings of everlasting life. Lord's Day 31 deals with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They're called keys because keys are the means we use to open or close a door. The keys are the preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. They are intended to open the kingdom of heaven to all who believe and to close it to unbelievers. This afternoon, we'll pay attention to what the keys of the kingdom represent. 
We will see how Jesus Christ is king over all, how he is the head of the church. We'll consider how Christ has given authority to his church to open his kingdom to believers and to shut it to unbelievers. We'll see how Christ has commanded the church to preach the gospel and how it is through this means that he calls people to repentance and faith. We'll also see how Christ lovingly cares for his flock, how he does not want any of his sheep to wander or stray away. Thus, Christ has also given his church discipline as a means to call straying members to repentance and life. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to his church. We'll consider the function of the keys and the application of the keys. The points that I've summarized the sermon on under are different from those in the liturgy sheet, so I want to repeat them one more time. Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to his church. We'll consider the function of the keys and the application of the keys. In Lord's Day 31, we speak about the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We all know a key is a tool. It either unlocks or it locks a door. By means of keys, a door is open to us or it's closed to us. Keys are used to give access or to bar access to whatever lies behind. When we go out, many of us will lock the door behind us before we leave. We do so because we don't want to give a thief free access to our home. And when we get home, we use a key to give us access to our home again. In Lord's Day 31, we are not talking about accessing a home. This Lord's Day deals with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We all know what heaven is. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Heaven is a place where God is seated on the throne in glory with millions of angels and the glorified church singing praises to him. Heaven is a place where Jesus Christ is seated on the throne at God's right hand. We know that the Father has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is king. He rules over all. Thus, this afternoon, our focus is on how we can join God and his son, Jesus Christ, in heaven. What does it take to make it to heaven so we can share in the joy and glory of all who are there? How do we get access to the glorious inheritance God has promised to all who love him? To answer this question, we need to understand that Jesus Christ is the one who controls the keys to his kingdom. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Christ says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. And in Revelation 3 verse 7, Christ makes it clear, he is the one who has the key of David, that what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The point that Christ is making is that he has been given authority from God 
to open the kingdom of heaven to those who believe in him and to shut it to those who don't. We read together from Matthew 16. In this passage, the Lord Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus spoke some very significant words. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is one of the most controversial and debated passages in all of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church use this passage to defend the idea that Peter was the first pope. They believe in what they call apostolic succession. Namely, that after Peter, there's been a succession of other men who've been appointed as pope, as head over the church. They claim authority from God to rule over the church based on the fact that Peter and his successors were given this authority directly from Christ in Matthew 16. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? Is it right to separate Peter from the rest of the apostles and give him an exalted role in the establishment of the church? No. The reason Peter is singled out by the Lord Jesus is because he was the one who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. Yet the other disciples believed the same thing. They also confessed Christ as Lord. In Ephesians 2 verse 20, Paul writes about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is true that Peter had a leading role in the early church. He is the one who proclaimed the gospel on Pentecost. And it was Peter and John who healed the lame man at the temple gate and who explained that the power to do so came from Jesus Christ alone. Yet in Matthew 16, Jesus did not give Peter greater authority than the other apostles. In Acts 15, it is the council at Jerusalem that makes a decision about whether or not Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. Peter also did not have the, the ability to speak forth the infallible word of God, as claimed by Roman Catholics. In Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter. And in Galatians 2, Paul corrects him publicly for not being willing to share communion with Gentile believers. So how are we to understand the charge Jesus gave to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19? Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What do these words mean? To understand this, we need to go back to Isaiah 22, 
which we read together. This passage provides the background of Christ's words spoken to Peter. In Isaiah 22, Isaiah utters a prophecy of judgment on the chief steward who served King Hezekiah. The steward's name was Shebna. He was in charge of the household. From the context, it appears that Shebna served in the highest position in the land under the king. Isaiah proclaims judgment upon him. For Shebna was guilty of using his high position for his own benefit. He did not serve as a faithful steward in his master's house. He was self-seeking and looked to make himself great. God's judgment would come upon him. He would be removed from his high position. Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would call Eliakim to serve in his place. He said, I will commit your authority to his hand. He says that Eliakim would be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Isaiah says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. From this we learn what this key of David is all about. The holder of the key of David is a person who holds great power and responsibility. The steward of the king's house was the custodian of the royal possessions. Yet even more important, he was the one who had great political power. You see, a steward controlled who got to see the king. He carried the keys to the palace. If someone wanted to see the king, the steward decided whether or not that person was worthy of appearing before the king. If he opened the door to allow the person in, then no one could shut that door. And if he shut the door in that person's face, no one could open it. Thus the steward had the authority to open or close the door, to give or to deny access to the king. In Matthew 16, verse 19, our risen and ascended Savior makes it clear. He would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter and the other apostles. That's a remarkable thing. For at that time, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, exercised religious authority over God's people, Israel. During his earthly ministry, Jesus instructed the people of Israel to listen to the Jewish leaders. In Matthew 23, verse 3, he said, So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. The time was coming when authority over the people of God would pass from the Sanhedrin to the apostles and the other leaders of the church. We see that transition take place in the book of Acts. The Jewish leaders killed Jesus in ignorance. But upon hearing the gospel, many continued to reject Jesus as the promised Messiah. They tried to silence the testimony of the apostles. 
They began to oppress and to persecute many Christians. The result was that God rejected them. He passed their former authority over his people onto the apostles and the elders. That was in fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 16, verse 19, to give Peter and the other apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This pattern has been repeated again and again in church history. We see a clear example of this in the time of the Reformation. For many years, God gathered his people by means of the Roman Catholic Church. In Western Christianity, it was a church that most people attended. Yet by the time of the Reformation, it had become corrupt. It no longer preached the truths of Scripture. It elevated the sayings of the Pope and the decrees of various councils so that they were on par with Scripture. In the Belgian Confession, the Roman Catholic Church was identified as a false church because it no longer held to the truths of Scripture and because it persecuted true Christian believers. So does the church today have authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And if so, what does that mean? We believe that any faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Christ has given the church both the authority and the responsibility to open and to close the kingdom of heaven. Christ has entrusted the care of the church to office bearers, especially to the pastors and the elders of the church. A pastor's greatest responsibility is to preach the gospel faithfully. Elders, together with the pastors, are to have supervision over God's church, that every member may conduct himself properly in doctrine and life. They need to guide, direct, encourage, and comfort us as we walk along the pathway of life. They are also called to exercise Christian discipline against those who show themselves unbelieving and ungodly and who refuse to repent. Because of this responsibility, God has also given these office bearers authority. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 12 and 13 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, verse 17 commands, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Yet please note, beloved, that our office bearers do not have absolute authority. Their authority is a derived authority. The manner in which they guide, direct, admonish, and discipline us needs to be based on the word of God. Jesus Christ is king over all. He is head over his church. He wants his people to be governed not by the dictates of men, but by his word and spirit. When we consider the keys of the kingdom of heaven, they're based on God's word. 
The first key, the preaching of the gospel, needs to be scripture-based, faithful to what God says to us in his word. The second key, church discipline, is also scripture-based. You can only admonish and discipline members on the basis of what God teaches in his word. We'll see that worked out further in our second point, the application of the keys. The first of the keys of the kingdom of heaven is the preaching of the holy gospel. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told the apostles, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We see that the apostle Paul passed on this charge to Timothy and to all ministers of the gospel today. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The church is responsible to ensure it administers the word of God faithfully. Do you know why that is? Because it's through the preaching of the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed to unbelievers. When the gospel is proclaimed, the mighty deeds of God are recounted. The gospel is focused on Christ's work of dying on the cross to pay for all our sins. And his resurrection from the dead, through which he has won the victory over sin, Satan, and death. There is a call to repent and believe. How we respond to that call determines whether or not heaven is opened or closed to us. Beloved, you are privileged to hear the gospel proclaimed twice each Sunday. When you come to church and the minister begins to preach, do you do your best to follow along? Do you strive to truly Hear the message? Or do you tune out? Or daydream? Or sleep the service away? And beloved, when you hear the preaching of the gospel, does it touch your heart in any way? Are you convicted of your sins so that you're humbled before God? Do you seek your salvation in Jesus Christ and in him alone? Do you recognize that you are a new creation in Christ? Does that show in how you live your life before God? The preaching of the gospel is God's means of bringing us to faith. In Romans 10 verse 17, Paul says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The preaching of the gospel has power to bring radical change in people's hearts and lives. In 1 Peter 1 verse 23, Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The Spirit uses the gospel message to open closed hearts, to soften hard hearts. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, and which was stubborn obedient. 
Christ uses the preaching of the gospel to change us from the inside out. Through it, he opens heaven to all who believe in him. Yet not everyone who hears the gospel receives it in faith. There are some who harden their hearts against it. They do not repent of their sins. They do not think it's necessary to believe in Jesus, to share in the abundant life that he offers. Many today are convinced that they will make it to heaven because they are good people. They think that somehow they deserve to share in the blessings of heaven. And beloved, that's not the case. Our catechism makes clear that the gospel needs to be received in faith to benefit anyone. It says the kingdom of heaven is closed when it's proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. This echoes what the Bible teaches. In John 3 verse 18, Jesus said, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In John 3, verse 36, he said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Thus, we should not take the preaching of the gospel for granted. Through his messengers, the Lord Jesus, the Good Shepherd, speaks. We're called to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking to us to earnestly hear the appeal, to come to him, to believe in him, to share the life he offers. If we reject Christ and his word, we will not be allowed into heaven. The blessings of salvation will be denied us on the final day. Your very life, beloved, is at stake. Repent and believe that you may share in communion with God now and eternally. Besides the preaching of the gospel, Christ has also given a second key by which heaven is closed and opened. It is the exercise of church discipline. There is no substantial difference between the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Both use the word of God to call people to repent and believe. The word of God is the norm, the standard that must be used. What is different is the manner in which it's applied. The gospel is proclaimed publicly to the whole congregation. In contrast, discipline is applied, is applied privately to the specific life of one of the church members. As such, you can tailor the message specifically to the life of a member who is straying. The goal is to call the straying member to repentance, that he or she may share in the life that only Christ can give. While the preaching of the gospel is a task that has been given particularly to the minister of the word, discipline is the task of the whole church. Our catechism summarizes what Jesus taught about discipline in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. 
It says, according to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians, but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life, are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. So who should be doing this admonition? The minister? The consistory? That's not what Jesus teaches. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. That means, beloved, that if you're aware of wrong doctrine or of an unchristian lifestyle, and one of the members of the church, it is your responsibility to approach that person and speak to them about their sin. Not to tell him or her what you think, but to open your Bible and let God's word speak to that person. Not in a spirit of pride, as if you're so much better, but in humility, recognizing that but for the grace of God could be you stuck in that sin. Gently, you need to warn and admonish, calling your fellow brother or sister to repentance. Your goal should be to restore the one who has fallen. Beloved, when's the last time you visited a straying brother or sister or wrote a letter to him or her? Have you ever done that? When the Lord Jesus confronted Cain with Abel's death, Cain asked, Am I my brother's keeper? At times it seems like we take on that attitude. It seems like there's a certain reluctance among us to warn and admonish one another. We have members under discipline among us. We have some who don't faithfully attend the worship services. Just check your church directory, you'll know who I mean. Why don't we reach out to them in love? Why don't we call them back to the Lord's service? We need to remember that we're fellow members of one body, a people for whom Christ shed his blood on the cross. We have a responsibility to care for each other, to help each other along the way of everlasting life. That involves not just making a meal for a sick mom or helping out when one of our families blessed with a new baby. Those are good things. Don't neglect doing them either. But we're also to hold each other accountable for how we talk, for how we work, for what we do with our leisure time, for how we live our lives. And brothers and sisters, when someone approaches you wanting to speak about something in your life, don't brush them off or give them the cold shoulder or tell them to mind their own business. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of love for someone to apply brotherly discipline. They may not always say everything perfectly. They've probably misunderstood you in some way. Yet listen, take to heed, take heed to their call to repentance. If you've done something wrong, then admit it. 
Express your sorrow at your sin. Make a commitment to living a godly lifestyle. Thank the person who's expressed concern for you. Perhaps even invite them to stand next to you if you're facing certain struggles in your life. Remember, the purpose of church discipline is to help each other share in the blessings of Christ. So that together we may inherit the crown of life Christ has promised to all who love him. That the way of heaven may remain open for us. This afternoon, we've considered the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Christ has given the church authority and responsibility to administer these keys. It's by the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of church discipline that the kingdom of heaven is opened and closed. For it's through these means that Christ speaks to us through his word and works in us by his spirit. Christ uses the keys of the kingdom to call us into communion with him and to keep us living close to him. These keys are meant to spur us forward on the pathway of life, to call us back from the pathway to hell. God desires our life, not our death. That's why he calls us to be faithful in administering the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 44, stanzas 3, 4, and 5.